Praise God for that. Praise God for the kids. That was amazing. I'm so glad that we uh, had that in the archives so we could share with you guys this morning. And I hope you are blessed as I am uh, by seeing those kids lift up the name of Jesus out of the mouth of babes, man. That's just, that's some good stuff. So since our current situation doesn't necessarily look like a typical Resurrection Sunday morning, um, I just asked the Lord to give me a message uh, that would be likewise a not-so-typical Resurrection Sunday message. And uh, so I've titled this message, What Man Can't Do, Christ Has Already Done. Somebody say amen because you can't do it yourself. Christ can only do it for you. Man's quest for a status that's greater than what he thinks he currently possesses can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So here we have God giving the man whom he created a command, not a suggestion, not a recommendation, but a command that he could eat freely from every tree of the garden with one exception. Another way we can say this, you know, or, or to describe this account, is that here we have God giving the man whom he created his word or his instruction. Kind of like how God has given us his word in the Holy Bible. In the form of this Bible, for us to learn his will and to have right relationship with him. How many of y'all want to have right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of it all. I do. Amen. So it leads me to a question. Why is it that God commanded the man not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, thankfully, he gives us that reason. He says the Bible tells us that it is because God commanded the man not to eat of this tree because uh, he would surely die. It would kill him, is what he was saying. So we fast forward just a bit to Genesis 3, 1 through 7, which says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. When we examine this particular text closely, we see that the, that the serpent is doing to Eve exactly what he is still doing to you and I today. He is questioning the veracity or the truth of God's word. Verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now God has given Adam simple, straightforward, and direct instructions in the garden not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
However, he never said anything about not touching it. All he ever said was, don't eat it. So Satan comes in and begins to twist the word of God, which leads Eve to add to the word of God, neither shall ye touch it. But God never said that. Which is another thing that is happening to us to this very day as well. Satan twisting the word of God and, pe and people all over the place adding and saying that God said things that he never said. Remember, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the entire field. God's word was clear and direct, but the serpent, in his subtlety, caused the word of God to become blurred in the mind of Eve, which caused Eve to put her own spin on the word of God without even realizing it. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So the serpent already has Eve exactly where he wants her, and he moves in for the kill. So rather than just twisting the word of God, he changes it entirely. God told Adam, if he ate of the tree, then thou shalt surely die. But the serpent comes and tells Eve the exact opposite. Ye shall not surely die. This is how Satan works, somebody. When God ordains how a thing should be, then Satan comes along and he counterfeits an opposite. Now notice that I didn't say Satan creates an opposite, but rather he counterfeits an opposite. You see, the serpent was just another created being whom our creator God created. Should I say that again? Satan was just another created being whom our creator God created. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So here the Bible tells us the serpent that tempts Eve in the garden was a creature or a beast that God had created. But he didn't have any creative means or abilities within and of himself. But what he did have was subtlety. And the word subtle means sly, cunning, crafty, insinuating. I love that part. That's, that's a very descriptive uh, word for this definition. Insinuating, deceitful, treacherous. So how does one commit treachery or deception and cunning craftiness? They lie. This is how one you know, operates in the mode of subtlety. They lie. It's kind of like having a vehicle that you know good and well is about to break down a lot sooner rather than later. And you don't want to be stuck with that vehicle that's going to need thousands of dollars worth of repairs. So you list it for sale on Facebook and Craigslist and all 
those other platforms to sell, you know, merchandise. And you shine it up real good. You detail the inside and you wipe all the oil off of the engine and take pictures from the best angles, making sure to avoid all the dents and dings and peel and paint. And you post it online. And when a potential buyer shows up to check the vehicle out, what's one of the first questions they always ask? Is there anything wrong with the vehicle? Well, you know in your mind if you say, yeah, it's going to need a new motor and a new transmission, there's no way in the world they're going to buy this vehicle and you are going to continue to be stuck with it. So instead, you might skate around the question with an indirect answer. And you may say something along the lines of, well, it does have new brake pads and I just had the oil change and it's got a couple of minor imperfections here and there, but it's always got me to where I need to go. It, in fact, it runs great for its age. But, you know, it is a 35-year-old vehicle with 600,000 miles on it, but it runs great for its age. Not, but that's not to say that most vehicles with this amount of mileage and this age are no longer running. So, which most of this statement may be true, but deep down inside, you know good and well that you are not telling this man the, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You're deceiving this man through subtlety and taking something that sounds close to the truth and leading that man right straight into a trap, a snare, as the Bible would say. He might make it home. Amen. He might get that limp that thing back to the house. But before the week's out, he's going to be broke down on the side of the road. That's subtlety. That's deception. That's treachery. And the serpent was more subtle, more deceitful, more treacherous than any beast of the field the Lord God had created. See, it was a bunch of lies and deception shrouded in some resemblance of the truth, aimed at fulfilling the desires of the flesh, just like what we see here in verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, <clears throat> She took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. So here we see a perfect picture of human nature rearing its ugly head for the first time in Scripture. Forget about the Word of God. Forget about what God said. Forget about the fact that he's already given us dominion over all the fish of the sea and over all the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the face of the earth, Genesis 1.28. Forget about that. Forget about all the gold and delium, which was a perfume or an incense, kind of like myrrh, and all the onyx that the Lord had made to abound all around us, Genesis 2.12. 
Forget about the fact that we can do whatever we want here in this garden except one tiny little thing. And the only reason we can't do that is because God knows when we do it, it's going to cost us everything. Forget about all that. Because my flesh tells me, or the serpent tells me, or some temptation is calling me, Telling me it's worth the risk because if there's even a slight possibility that I can have more than what I have right now, then I want it. That's my flesh. If I can have more than what I have right now, my flesh is going to say, let's go get it no matter what the cost. You see, I've already got 50 rolls of toilet paper at the house already, and poor Miss Daisy is stuck at the house with only one roll left, but who cares about Miss Daisy? I better buy what little the store has left while I still can so I can have more. Forget about the fact that God just got finished forming all of the universe by the power of his word, which seems to miss. Amen. If God created the very ground that you're standing on and the skies that you're standing up under and all of the stars that blanket up over us and all of the things that are around us, doesn't that make him somewhat of an expert on every subject within the, within the realms of his creation? Somebody ought to say, yes, glory, and amen in Jesus' name. But you see, the serpent said that God was withholding more from you than what you have right now. You see, God is withholding something special that he doesn't want you to have. And if there's more than you know, you've got to have it. Because church, I'm here to tell you, the flesh is never satisfied and it can never have enough. That's why we can't trust the flesh. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to give to every man according to the fruit of his doings. You can't trust your flesh. You can't trust your own, your own heart. That's why we need God. We need a trusted, authoritative source in our life that we can look to for guidance through, to get us through this insanity that we call life. But, and you see, Adam and Eve were already made in the image and the likeness of God. They already had dominion over everything in the earth. They already had fellowship and relationship with God. But when Eve heard that there might be more, and she looked at the tree and saw that all she had to do was reach out and touch it and take some of its fruit. And she saw how pleasant it was to her eyes and how beautiful and how enticing and how tempting it really was. Then she became overtaken with the desire to receive this mysterious wealth of wisdom and knowledge that God was supposedly withholding from them. Mm. And it was in that moment that the word of God was no longer enough. And when they ate of the fruit of that tree, they said, we know better 
than God. We can be God ourselves and we can make our own path in this life. We don't need anybody telling us what to do. But you see, what they didn't realize was that man can't make his own way to God. But there was something deep within inside of him that constantly tries to convince him that he can. Remember Cain and Abel. Cain tried to make his own way to the Lord and was rejected. But Abel came correct in the manner that the Lord commanded him and his offering was received well from the Lord. Genesis 4 verse 7. God, had seen, had, God saw that Cain was upset and said to him in Genesis 4 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Here God acknowledges the reality of human nature. We are locked in a battle with sin's desire for us and our desire to sin. And God tells Cain that Cain is to recognize this battle. And he is to rule over his sin and not let his sin rule over him. This word desire and rule over here in Genesis 4 is the same exact phrases that God used when he spoke the punishment to Eve in Genesis 3.16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. However, Cain ignores this correction and insists on setting his own standards for what is acceptable and finds out firsthand that truly sin lieth at the door. And the wages of that sin is death. So Cain kills his brother Abel and is cursed from the earth to the point to where he says, I cannot bear this punishment that I'm enduring. Just take me out. But God said that ain't going to happen. Fast forward to Genesis 11 where we find a story about a group of people who settled in a plain area in a place called Shinar. Genesis 11.3 says, And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Here we have another picture of man attempting his very best to elevate himself to a status that does not belong to him. They're trying to make their own way into heaven when God says, that's just not going to work. It didn't work for Adam, it didn't work for Eve, it didn't work for Cain, and it's not going to work for any of you either. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them. 
which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Let's fast forward a little bit more. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 14, 11 through 17. Isaiah 14, 11. Thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This story sounds a little familiar, does it not? Because here we have a picture of the prince of the power of the air, himself, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, seeking to exalt himself above all the stars of God. Lucifer, Satan, the serpent, the devil, whatever you want to call him, saying, I will be like the Most High. This is the same lie, the same deception, and the same insanity that the serpent told Eve in the garden, and the same insanity that he's still whispering in the minds of men to this very day. Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as the gods. You too can be like the Most High. His, his way is not the only way. There are many ways to get there. But look at what God says back to Lucifer here in Isaiah 14. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying is this the man that made the earth to tremble that did shake kingdoms that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. Church, there is no other way except God's way. Some people out there that are watching right now may be saying this message is just a bunch of old Bible time, mumbo jumbo. None of that really applies today. Nobody really thinks like that anymore. Well, I beg to differ. I want to read to you a portion of an article to make you aware of some things that are going on in the world right now that you may not know about. Before I lay it out there, there though, I want to make something very clear. What is one 
thing that man fears more than anything else on the earth. Death. Of course, the believer in Christ doesn't have to fear death because he knows that he will live with Christ one day forever. Somebody say amen. But for those who reject Christ and lean on their own understanding, they face a serious problem because there is an incredible foe that will eventually come for us all on this side of life. And that foe is called death. But thank God he's defeated death, hell, and the grave when they hung him up there on that cross. The Bible says, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, that's Hebrews 9.27. And for the believer, that's no problem because we will be judged through the blood of the cross. So as has been done from all the way back in the garden, man is still attempting to exalt himself above the throne and the will of Almighty God. There is a move within the scientific community, and this is going to sound a lot like science fiction, but please understand, regardless of whether or not you agree that it's a possibility, it doesn't matter because I'm talking about the condition of the heart of man. So there is a move within the scientific community that is seeking to cure something that we call death. There was an article that was published in September of 2017 titled, Could Science One Day Cure Us of Old Age? That's the title of this article. A scientist by the name of Juan Carlos Ipsusa Belmonte testifies of having a difficult time watching his single mother look after his sick grandparents devoid of all hope and joy in her struggling life which led Juan Carlos to asking questions such as what are we doing here what is all of this about and what is the point of our lives what I do now is try to understand how life unfolds says Juan Carlos how 250 kinds of cells can be generated from one cell to make a human being, and how this can get out of control, leading to death or illness. Juan Carlos has made a career out of genetic research and stem cell therapy, treating premature aging and other age-related diseases. Fueled by billions of techno dollars from Silicon Valley, it is one of the most exciting areas of scientific research today. Now, aging itself is being referred to by scientists as an illness. This is what this article is saying. This is the words of this article. Aging itself is being referred to by scientists as an illness. Ipsua, for example, speaks about curing old age. In his lectures on the International Conference Circuit, he illustrates the process with three images. One of Arnold Schwarzenegger as a child, another of Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime when he was in movies like Conan the Barbarian, and finally the third picture 
was as he is now, his buffed up body a shadow of its former self. And his point is that no one escapes. But then Juan Carlos challenges this assumption. Is it really a one-way street, talking about old age and death, is it really a one-way street or could we reverse the process? One way of tackling illnesses associated with aging is by generating cells, tissue, and organs in the laboratory with the aim of extending life. Another is to modify the genome and the pre-genome, the inheritable traits of an organism. Juan Carlos has been working in this field for some time, inspired by the Japanese Nobel Prize winner Shinya Yamanaka, who managed to return adult cells to their embryonic state. Juan Carlos is optimistic. He talks about dying cells being rejuvenated and muscles regaining their elasticity, cut and paste genetics, and modifying embryos to avoid problems in future generations. Our existence, he concludes, can be, y'all catch this. Our existence, he concludes, can be summarized in four billion years of random mutations and natural selection. This is their religion. All right, natural selection, evolution, which uh, all of this came out of nothing. And then all of a sudden, it all just came into existence, the Big Bang. And through billions of years of random genetic mutations, life as we know it has, uh, evol you know, has uh, mutated randomly to become what we know now and what we are now. So he says, our existence, he concludes, can be summarized and four billion years of random mutations and natural selection. Natural selection means that uh, uh, nature basically decides to weed the weak out from the strong. That's how evolution works. So the, the longer we exist, uh, the more that nature understands the weaknesses of human frailty and nature's frailty, and they get rid of the frailty you know, part of, of nature and and replace it with stronger genes and, and all this kind of stuff. He says, until now, that is. So for all these four billions of years, we've been at the mercy of genetic mutations, random genetic mutations, and natural selection. But now we can sidestep Darwin and change humanity's evolutionary path, he claims. So now... Here we don't only have someone stepping around the Word of God, which clearly they are, trying to reach man's elevated state, but now they are, man is also exalting themselves over their revered religion of evolution. They're sidestepping everything. They're, they're saying, I won't be bound by any rules, by any... Um, Random chance, I'm going to make my own way to Godhood and to eternal life. That's what they're saying. In 1900, life expectancy in Spain was 35. Now it's over 83. But more people die than are born. Armed with data, the molecular biologist Maria Blasco 
forecast a very different future for a very different society for the future. There will be fewer of us than there are now, but we will live much longer, says the head of the Spanish National Center for Cancer Research, who has spent more than 20 years studying microscopic DNA structures and the molecules known as telomerase. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. But what I find interesting is this leading expert in um, extending and prolonging life is an expert because she spent 20 years studying this subject. When God created the subject and he spent all of the time, an eternal amount of time, an unending amount of time, he didn't have to study it. He created it. Somebody say amen, please. As cell, uh, telomeres uh, protect chromosomes and their length acts as a biomarker. An aging and health yardstick, according to Blasco, who looks vaguely like a grunge singer. As cells divide over time, the telomeres get shorter and shorter until they are so short our cells can no longer reproduce. The human body tries to stop this process naturally with another enzyme called telomer, some other word. It sounds similar. A sort of reset button for the telomere. This is the key to Blasco's research. In 2008, she and her team injected this enzyme into mice, extending their lives by 40%, suggesting that it has the capacity to reverse the aging process. If we did this to humans, it would be possible to reach 130 with almost a clean bill of health, says Blasco. Obviously, we can't extrapolate because we are not mice, but that's the thinking. Another guy, Kenyon, now works in Calico, an offshoot of Google dedicated to research on aging. Started in 2013 with a budget of 1.26 billion pounds, which is, you know, the English currency or whatever, double that of the Spanish National Research Council, the project is highly confidential. Of course, the quest for longevity fascinates the tech sector. In one of his recent visits to Spain, Google's executive chairman of Alphabet, Eric Schmidt, arranged a meeting with Blasco seeking an update on her research. But Blasco's international renown is largely due to the hallmarks of aging, which she co-authored in 2013, flagging up the molecular signs of aging. It was an intellectual exercise, she observes. The idea is that the molecular cause of age-related illness is the same as aging itself. It, can, it changed the paradigm. I know this is a lot of information, but bear with me. I'm almost to the end. British gerontologist Aubrey de Grey, 54, takes a sip of wine and places his glass on the floor before explaining the means and goals of his Sins Research Laboratory. The name of his research laboratory is called Sins Research Foundation. You take from that what you will. Set up with most of the 11.5 million pounds left to him by his mother. We develop strategies that will turn back the clock on aging, he says, adding that he has a pretty clear idea of the path to take. A road he calls Focus on maintenance. According to DeGray, human deterioration is comparable to the wear and tear on a car. It's more a question of physics than biology, he says. 
We get old through use. If we could repair what we wear out as we go, our prospects would be the same as a Ford T, which was built to last for 10 years, but is still going strong a century later. It's a matter of cleaning, making adjustments, and changing parts. In other words, regenerated cells, engineered tissue, and inserting nanobots inside us in a relentless rejuvenating cocktail. When asked how long a human being could keep going with this kind of maintenance, DeGray replies, there really is no limit. When he steps up to the podium to expound on his theories, he assumes the air of a visionary. He has appeared in numerous articles with headlines such as, we will be able to live to 1,000. This is, this is man's quest, still going strong today. DeGray is also co-founder of the Methuselah Foundation. If you don't know who that is, go back to Genesis. Both SINs and Methuselah fund experiments that are labeled high-risk, high-reward, and their headquarters are next to those of Google and Facebook. And he says, we're talking about very ambitious goals. Now, there's another thing that I want to talk about real quick here. He says... There's general excitement and a greater realization that this is not science fiction. It is a legitimate area of technology to conquer. And what that's what we're going to do. We're taking the first step. We have to work as quickly as we can and save as many lives as we can. That's what Jesus did on the cross, somebody. Somebody say amen. He's already made the way. But next, the article talks about cryogenics, and I'll stop with this which basically means freezing people with the expectation of thawing them out at some point in the future when they have cured death. Still, cryopreservation companies are springing up everywhere. The biggest is the American giant Alcor, run by Max Moore, which has frozen 150 patients since the 1970s and has more than 1,000 people signed up to be put on ice when they die. According to Moore, the company is not profit-driven, but patients have to cough up a minimum of 170,000 pounds to pay for the process. To pay for the process, watch this: maintenance, maintenance, and resurrection. Maintenance and resurrection should it take place, but there are no guarantees on this score. I will guarantee it. It won't take place. They won't be resurrected because Jesus is the resurrection. Somebody say. Amen. He goes on to say, if we want to leave Earth and our solar system to visit the stars, we need cryopreservation. No, we need Jesus. So he's frozen 53 people and 22 dogs, but she admits that so far they have not tried to resuscitate any of the corpses, neither for that matter has Alcor. The movement has become the torchbearer in the quest for immortality. This Movement has become the torchbearer in the quest for immortality. And by the way, it's all funded by Google. We do not accept the undesirable aspects of our condition. We question the natural and traditional limits of our possibilities. We foresee that life will extend beyond the confines of Earth to inhabit the cosmos. Imagine if we could be healthy for thousands of years. Ultra-mature beings, it's a heartening thought. And of course, there's a lot more information in this article, but obviously I don't have time enough to read it. 
And I know it sounds like something out of a science fiction movie, but so does a virus coming up all of a sudden out of nowhere and putting the entire world, not just the United States, on lockdown. So what am I trying to say? I want to read one more quote from the article so you can get a clear picture of exactly what I'm trying to say. Quote, one of the most heated debates is on the cryopreservation of human beings, a kind of plan B that puts humans on ice while they work out the secret to eternal life. That ought to send chills up and down your spine. Man, from the beginning, has been trying to make himself into God and pave his own way into eternal life. But it didn't work for Adam, it didn't work for Eve, it didn't work for Cain, it didn't work for the people of the Tower of Babel, and I have a newsflash word of prophecy that I didn't even have to go and pray for, and it's for the scientists out there today who we just read about, it's not going to work for them either. There is only one way to live in a state worth living for eternity, and that's through the blood of the cross. A man by the name of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 had a dream in a place called Bethel, which means house of God. And in his dream, he saw a ladder, and there angels of God were ascending and descending from heaven and to the earth and back again. But what Jacob did not know and what many for another thousand or so years did not know was that that ladder had a name and his name was Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 verse 51. Jesus makes a statement to a man that he's called to be his disciple named Nathaniel. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open." and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What Jesus was saying was that He is the bridge between man and God. And that bridge has been broken since the Garden of Eden when, God, when man tried to elevate himself to be equal with God. But Jesus says, ever since that moment, I've had a plan to fix that brokenness. I've had a plan to bridge the gap and restore the path for man to return back into the presence of Almighty God. But just like building any other bridge, it's not going to come easy and without a price. It's going to cost me a great price, in fact. But I'll gladly pay that price, not because I desire to endure such affliction, I'm not looking at the pain, and I'm not looking at the toil. I'm not looking at the blood, the sweat, and the tears. But what I'm looking at is out over the spans of time, and I'm looking at a bunch of sinners in need of a Savior. And there is no other way to save them. If there is another way, then let this cup pass from me. But if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will still be done. You see, church, you and I deserved death. But thank God we have a God who showed us mercy. And when those wicked religious rulers hung him up there on the cross and the Lord uttered a statement so powerful, the whole earth quaked 
And the ground split in two, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came up out of the grave after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. That powerful statement was when he hung up there on the cross and he said, Father, into, my, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a shoe of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. That's Colossians chapter 2. Beloved, it's not your good works, it's the cross. It's not the fact that you're a good person, it's the cross. You will never be able to elevate yourself to the heavens and make your own way to eternal life. It's the cross. If there was another way, God would have made it a long time ago without Christ having to go through what he went through. But there was no other way but the cross. So I say to you here and now what I would say to Adam, to Eve, to Cain, to Babel, and to all of us, and to whomsoever will listen. What man cannot do, Christ has already done. All you got to do is accept it. Jesus died on the cross because man cannot enter into the throne of grace in his sinful state. And we're born in a sinful state as sinful creatures. But through the cross, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How do we get there? First, we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And that the wage, wages of our sin is death. We've all fallen short of the glory of God through our sin nature. But, here, but there's a hope that's found in a man named Jesus Christ. And that hope is not found in our own good nature and good deeds and good works. The Bible says it's for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Christ, and that gift was Jesus Christ hanging on the cross to pay the remission of your sins. Church, that's not a small thing. Believer, that's not a small thing. Unbeliever, whoever is watching, that's not a small thing. There is power in the preaching of the gospel. And he says, Therefore, if any man should call on the name of the Lord, he shall be saved. If a man confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that Jesus is Lord and he died on the cross and rose on the third day, that man shall be saved. And he no longer has to try to work his way and elevate his way over and or equal to the throne of Almighty God, which is impossible. 
but something that's very possible is coming through the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for you and I. That's a very possible reality. And for anyone who might be out there watching that don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I'm going I'm to make this request known to you. That maybe what I'm saying to you right now is beginning to make a whole lot of sense. And you, say, and you might say to yourself, man, I've been trying for a long, long time to find some sense of satisfaction and elevation from my current state, whatever that may be, but I'm constantly failing. Brother, sister, that's going to be the case because you can't do it on your own. But maybe Christ is reaching down and calling out to you right now as we speak. Maybe you feel some sense of searching within inside of yourself to dis discover and determine who you really are. And when you determine who that is, maybe you're not satisfied. But I got good news for you. Right now, the Holy Spirit of God may be leading you into the presence of a relationship unlike any other relationship you'll ever have. A relationship with Jesus Christ and the Father God Almighty. And if that's you, and you feel like that's the Holy Spirit that's leading you right now, we're going to bow our heads. It's not anything to do about what I say. The Bible, I just told you, the Bible says, when a man calls upon the name of the Lord, and he confesses with his mouth, and believe in his heart that Jesus is Lord. He died on the cross and he rose on the third day. Father, forgive me a sinner that can't make it on his own. That's where it comes from. And you pray a prayer, something like that. I'll lead you in it, but it, but it doesn't have anything to do with what I say for you. It's got to come from you and come from your heart. So if the Father's leading you right now, we're going to bow our heads we're going to pray. And if you are a saved believer, I'm going to ask you to do this. Bow your head wherever you are right now. And I want you to pray and ask God to begin to open up the heart of the unbeliever under the sound of my voice right now. That they might be saved. That's some scripture. I want you to begin to pray right now that God will open up the heart of the unbeliever hearing this message. Go ahead and pray right now. And for the rest of you, let's bow our heads. Don't repeat it after me just because it's what I'm saying. But this is the Bible. And, and if the Lord is calling you, that's between you and Him. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. And God, your word says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That Those handwriting ordinances, that's the law. Basically saying that if you've ever told a lie, then you're a liar. If you've ever looked at someone with hate or anger in your heart, then you're a murderer. If you've ever looked at another person with lust or envy, then you're an adulterer and you're a covetous individual. And even if you've never done but one of those things, you are still guilty of breaking the entire law. And Lord, our breaking that law leaves us in a condemned state deserving death. But Lord, thank God, that Jesus Christ, an act of obedience 
and sacrifice on the cross paid the price for the penalty of our sin because you say the wages of our sin is death. So Lord, thank you because you've not left me to stay in this fallen state. So if you're out there, begin to pray something like this. Father, forgive me a sinner that deserves death. But Father, according to your word, you say, if I'll call on you and confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that you are who you say you are and that you want to do what you say you want to do in my life, just save me, set me on another path, and one day have eternal life in heaven with you. Father, I want it, and I believe you are who you say you are. Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, gave himself a ransom so that I might be saved. So Father, save me. Father, forgive me. Father, help me and lead me and guide me into all truth by your Holy Spirit. I receive you now, and I thank you, and I love you, and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you've been blessed on this Resurrection Sunday morning. And I pray that you'll share this message with somebody out there that you know needs to hear it. So go in peace, be blessed, keep Jesus at the forefront of your life. I love you in Jesus' name. See you later. Praise the
See you. 